If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. What does it mean to take the king's shilling? What was it like to fire a cannon in the heat of battle? And what does the phrase, letting the cat out of the bag, have to do with life at sea? For our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're discussing the age of sail. Digital section editor Kev Lochun spoke to the naval historian Kate Jamieson, who answered your questions on this highly romanticised period of maritime history. Kate, I thought a great place to begin would be a question from Sandy Richardson, 1505 on Instagram, who simply asked, when was the age of sail? Yeah, uh, and that's a great question, actually, because (laughs) there are so many different answers depending on who you speak to. So uh, I would, I mean, obviously, sailing as a concept has existed for for thousands of years, and you, you can go into battles at sea through, well, all the all the way back uh, throughout history. But I mean, the age of sail, as people kind of think of it, today, I guess would have started probably in the 1300s. Um, you've got your continental discoveries, you've got America being um, discovered in 1492, for example. Uh, and I guess really it's that kind of long 14th, 15th century through to the 19th century, you've got uh, international trade by sea, you've got huge naval battles that we all we all know about today. Um, which were absolutely dominated, dominated by sea. Uh, and I mean, if you're looking at the history specifically of the Royal Navy, which is what I do, then, I mean, you can you can find a naval battle on almost every uh, every day of the year if you if you try to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it goes all the way through, uh, like I said, from sort of the 1300s through to, I guess, the, the 19th century, really, when steam started to uh, come in. And within that period, is it possible to distinguish the golden age of sail, as it's sometimes called? Yeah, I mean... I think for most people uh, that I've spoken to, certainly that kind of golden age of sail, if you ask people about it, is usually around the kind of 17, 1800s, that time period that everybody thinks of with the the French Revolution, you've got the Napoleonic Wars, and you've got these battles being fought out around the globe, really. Um, and, and, you know, you've got the Nile in Egypt, for example, you've got things going on in the Caribbean. There's just, it's, that's kind of the, the, time period, I guess, that people romanticise and, and think of when you think of these square-rigged ships and fighting in these fleet battles, etc. But you've also obviously got um, all of the exploratory voyages, so Captain Cook or, or Magellan, etc., uh, going off on, on all of these little adventures around the world. And they've been hugely, hugely important for, for science, for research, for navigation, etc. 
Yeah, it, it's such a huge part of history. Um, Aidan Mohammed on Instagram, he asked, when does the age of sail, which is kind of pinnacle? I mean, you mentioned Napoleonic Wars. Most people, I think, are very familiar with that. Um, is that the kind of period or would you say it extends a bit later on? The Napoleonic Wars obviously are, I guess, that kind of age of sale proper that people think about. But um, if you're thinking about that, whether there's a, an expiry date per se for the age of sale, then I guess the last the last battle that you have with, with sailing vessels on either side um, is the Battle of Navarino in 1827. But uh, you've still got sailing ships. I mean, and the Cutty-Sark is a, a prime example, really. Uh, one of the fastest ships in the world carrying tea back from China back in, what, 18, 18, in the 1860s. I don't want to give an actual year because I, I'm really, really bad at dates. But um, you, throughout the 19th century, you'd have these tea clipper ships competing with each other, really, to see who could get the tea back from China to, to Britain, etc. So whilst the age of sail is kind of thought to have finished when steam came in and these steamships, actually, you, you still had sailing ships taking things like grain, even in, in the Second World War in places like Australia. We've talked about ships there, so that's a good segue, because lots of people want to know more about the ships themselves. Um, Isla Cherie on Instagram, she asks, how does ship design change throughout the Age of Sail? Because I think there's a kind of popular perception that there's this kind of one ship, the kind of grand galleon, lots of masts, lots of sails. But how does it evolve? Because this is a period of centuries we're talking here. Yeah, and... Uh like we've already discussed, it's such a huge, a huge topic. But I mean, if you think about ships kind of, I mean, most of my focus, sorry, is going to be on a British Royal Naval sort of perspective, because that's my my topic. But uh, the Tudor Navy kind of were the first to sort of have this sort of class of ship, I guess. Um, it got abandoned, and then it came back in. And then uh, it was actually Pepys uh, who came up with that kind of ship rating that we have that we know of today for the for the the time period. So your first rates, your second rates, your third rates, etc. And they were your ships that kind of formed your line of battle. Um, but in terms of standardizing classifications, it didn't really happen until, like I said, the kind of 17th, 18th centuries. The French were the French were pretty good with it. They uh had blueprints and tended tended to work off of those for most ships. And actually if you look at a lot of British ships, there's a there's one of the ship designers essentially provided this this sort of classic design for a ship in the Napoleonic revolutionary sort of time period. And you would look at these ships and they were all built to the same kind of standard. They were the same sort of amount of guns and things. Um, Thomas Slade, that's his name, Thomas Slade. Uh, and actually a lot of his ships were at Trafalgar altogether. Some of them on our side, some of them had been taken by the French. So you, you had a, all of these ships kind of fighting each other, but they were all built to the same the same design by that point in time, or at least a very, very similar design. It's really fascinating, isn't it, that journey? And uh, at William123 on Instagram, would like to know, because we just talked about war very quickly in there, what is the best warship in the Age of Sail? <laughs> oh, that's such a, such a tricky question. It depends what you class as the best, really. You've got your frigates, which are fast and speedy, and you could go and use them for reconnaissance and go in and out of ports, etc. But then you've got your first rates, your second rates, your big, your big ships that would be in your line of battle, which... Obviously, if you're you're fighting a battle, then then they're your kind of best warships, I guess. Um, obviously, one of the most famous today is HMS Victory, purely because because she exists. Uh, but it it really depends on what you are classing as best, because obviously the the crews, the skills for gunnery, etc., the 
the seamanship ability uh, all come into play there. I mean, the largest ship you had at Trafalgar um, was the Santissima Trinidad, for example, when they think actually one of the largest ships in the world at the time. But actually, at the Battle of Trafalgar, the percentage of trained crew was minuscule. So amazing ship, amazing technology, but perhaps not great at fighting in that kind of traditional sense, I guess. You've said lots of things we're going to pick up on very shortly. But perhaps uh, a good question to ask as follow-up now is which type of ship would you want to captain in that period? Ooh, I think I'd go for a frigate. They got to do some pretty cool things. They got lots of prize money, uh, went off and did their little intelligence missions. I think that would be quite quite fun. So uh, I, I don't know if people have seen Hornblower. The Indefatigable, of course, is is a frigate. Lovely, lovely ship. <laughs> and actually based on a based on a true true story as well. Funny enough, that is one of my questions, so we'll segue straight into that now. Hornblower was a real person? Uh, no. So Hornblower, well, Hornblower himself wasn't a real person, but obviously uh, C.S. Forrester based him on plenty of real naval officers who existed at the time. So uh, a lot of the stories that are in the Hornblower books, um, the sort of missions he goes on, etc., they were based on Nelson, they were based on Gordon, they are based on Cockburn, etc., and actually, you've got people like Cornwallis, you've got Pellew, et cetera, appearing throughout these books. So they're all these huge, famous naval names. So you, it's kind of why people think Hornblower was a real person, but uh, it's kind of an amalgamation, I guess, of all these different naval officers and all of the exciting things they got up to uh, put, in, put into one. But it, I think it's a, a really interesting one and a fantastic, fantastic series of books. I think we should probably talk about it's such a, a volatile time in terms of the global stage. Could you just chat for us very quickly how the events of the Age of Sail influence um, international alliances and the balance of world power? Like I said, you're look, you're going all the way through from these from these times of discovery through to these huge, huge wars, really, the Napoleonic Wars, etc. And at this point, you've got allegiances between countries changing rapidly, actually. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got Spain declaring war at a different time to France and then suddenly they'll come back out of it and then they go back into it. And you've got all of these different nations trying to build their empire, really, and kind of increase their global footprint. And it's just a huge, huge uh, topic to discuss. But obviously, without all of these navies, without these fleets, this merchant trade, etc., all of these things tie in together to be able to make that that happen, that kind of empire drive i guess yeah it's absolutely huge isn't it um one specific one we had in from nj carvalho they wanted to know a bit more about portugal's role in alliance with britain what can you tell us about the significance of that within this period i mean portugal uh portugal and britain i think have had one of the longest alliances going in history i mean it goes all the way back to i think the 1300s it's it's huge i mean even today we're still we're still very close with portugal um, and obviously, at the time, you had the French uh, and Britain fighting all the time. Then the Spanish joined in. And obviously, Portugal is very, very close to this. So having this allegiance with Portugal was, was incredibly important. Uh, and when you move through the kind of history, I know that we we vaguely mentioned before we started recording about spices, for example, Portugal were, were a huge nation uh, and they became incredibly rich through this kind of domination of this spice trade, really. Uh, and so those commercial benefits that having having a kind of alliance like that with Britain brought were, were fantastic. 
Um, and obviously you get to the Peninsula War and you've got these sort of Anglo-Portuguese troops fighting under Wellington and things, sort of fighting against Napoleon. It's, it's such a huge, uh, hugely important alliance. And like I said, it still still continues today, really. That, I hope, serves as a good overview for the Age of Sarah in general. What we're going to spend a fair bit of time talking about now, where a lot of our questions are about, is what life is actually like at sea for sailors during this time. Uh, we, we, we did talk a little bit about battles. You mentioned Trafalgar uh, earlier. Could you describe a typical battle for us? You know, is it common for the people to do this loss of cat and mouse and then suddenly one kind of short, sharp, exchange of broadsides, that's it? Or do they each become more long, drawn-out affairs? Like, what's most likely to have happened? So you get a real mix, to be honest. Uh there are there are a number of battles that sort of started with lots of chasing uh, or, you know, you start fighting and then the weather turns and you're in thick fog. And so suddenly you take that opportunity to do the repairs that you need to do to your ship. But then the next day the weather clears and you're fighting again. And it, it was quite common for some battles to go on, you know, multiple days because you didn't tend to fight at night. One of the interesting interesting uh, stories, I guess, kind of relating to Nelson, especially is the Battle of the Nile, because by the time they actually sailed into Abu Kir Bay, it was about five o'clock in the evening. So they actually continued fighting in the dark, uh, which confused the French immensely. Uh, and actually, they ended up firing on their own ships. It was it was not a great situation for them. But the kind of the typical battle in terms of, of lining out, you would have your lines of battle. So your first rates, your second rate, your, your, your ships of the line, essentially. And they would line up alongside a counterpart, and they would fire on each other essentially until until the other gave in. Uh, one of the interesting things when you go go further through, you've got uh, the Battle of the Saints, for example. It, so Nelson wasn't the first to do it. You've got these ships kind of breaking the line uh, of battle and coming in at a different angle and kind of se- separating that fleet. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for doing that. You can fire shots throughout sort of the full length of a ship, which is absolutely devastating, knocking guns off carriages and, and and killing so many people, which obviously your your aim is to to stop that ship from from firing back. But um in terms of of there being like a set battle format, no, absolutely not. They changed so much. And and talking about cat and mouse, actually Nelson spent a good few months before Trafalgar chasing Villeneuve across the Atlantic and back, etc. So um there was a little bit of that. Um but yeah, I mean it just depended. The weather played a huge part in most of them, obviously, because you're at sea and and you yeah, you're held to held to account by the weather most of the time. You mentioned ships of the line there. Could we just clarify that bit of terminology? Uh yeah, so um your ships of the line obviously were your ships that would fight in a line of battle. So uh as we discussed earlier, through that ship design, you would have your first rates, which are your largest ships, which are kind of a hundred guns and up, etc. And and essentially it went down through reducing in the number of guns and crew, et cetera, as you went all the way down to, I think, sixth rate was the, was the lowest that you would get. I've noticed you used the hashtag on Twitter, gunnery is funnery, which I absolutely loved. What was it like to fire a cannon? Because it it doesn't... Was it actually fun? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> um, I just think it's a, a great little saying that people have picked up from somewhere, and, and I love it. But um, no, absolutely not. It was so much work. Uh, so much work and it, it was it was horrible i don't know if uh, you've seen master and commander there's an excellent uh, depiction of a gunnery drill there which shows it almost perfectly you know 
you've got all these guys crowded around a gun and they're swabbing the barrel to get rid of any of the obviously the loose embers from previously so that you didn't accidentally set off the the gunpowder prematurely and then you would put your cartridge in and you'd prick it etc but there were so many risks i mean like i said if you if you hadn't swabbed it out properly you you you'll uh, gunpowder could catch there before you've even fired the gun. You're running out this this incredibly heavy piece of metal. Uh, if it comes off a gun carriage, it, for any reason, it will fly back across the ship and, and it would just be devastating. The amount of crush injuries and, and horrible stories you see from the gun crews um, uh, are mad, really. But it, it's, it's incredibly technical, actually. So I'm, look, I'm doing some research at the moment into gunners in the Royal Navy and the level of mathematics relating to the angles of fire and the quantities of gunpowder, like different um, quantities, it's kind of chemistry-based, I guess. There's so much more to it than people people think. But yeah, certainly certainly not fun. Um, you're right down there in the thick of it, really, uh, with other people firing at you. So yeah, the evolution, I guess, in technology meant that it was somewhat easier for the British going forward. So instead of using a linstock, a uh, slow match, you could have a flintlock, etc., which would fire everything at once. So you had all of these these sort of developments in technology that made your life a little bit easier, I guess. Uh, but it, it was incredibly dangerous and, and certainly not funnery. <laughs> it does sound incredibly risky. Is it the riskiest place to be in a battle? Ooh, tricky. Uh Yes and no. I think those those of you up on the up on the top deck really are, are the ones that are going to get fired at the most certainly in the sense that you would generally have sharpshooters on the other vessels firing at you. It's much easier for them to pick you off than if you're below, below decks. But um, the amount of ships that you know, like I said, if you if you had a a shot that went down, a raking shot that went down through the length of your ship from stern to to bow, for example, like from the back to the front of the ship it would knock the gun carriages off and it would take all of these different people out and it and there's splinters flying everywhere there's smoke uh it would have just been a, a horrible place to work really and there are so many people that had hearing problems and i've i've seen about people having their ears literally bleeding from the from the noise etc just I think there's this kind of romance with the age of sail but uh when you think about it from a kind of practical perspective actually um pretty grim the other part of the battle we should talk about is when ships get into close quarters and we have boarding parties. Um, I mean, how common was that first? And then we have another question from Antique Steel. Who just wants to know about boarding weapons? What were the most important ones? Yeah, so uh, boarding was incredibly common. Actually, uh, there's a, a famous story of uh, from the Battle of Cape St. Vincent of Horatio Nelson taking a ship, boarding it, and then cross-decking from that ship to another ship and boarding that as well. And it became known as Nelson's Patent Bridge for boarding first rates. Um, so yeah, it was incredibly common. And kind of the goal of boarding really was to, to get onto that ship and overrun the personnel on board so that you can capture it or destroy it or whatever whatever your aim is, but essentially to get rid of, get rid of the guys who were on there. Um, and obviously most of the time this was sailors that were doing it, or you might have your Marines on board for the for the Royal Navy, um, or your regular troops. Some some troops had army on them, uh, and essentially, yeah, the plan was to get over and overrun it. You'd have 
Oh, anything from, you know, grenades, pistols, you'd have bayonets. They had the the naval boarding pikes um, and, of course, boarding axes, which were incredibly popular purely because, A, they were a weapon. B, you could, you know, crash through doors or or open anything that's shut, cut through any lines that had, had come across. Um, and then also there's kind of, I guess, more from a stealth perspective, there's the the concept of kind of cutting out boarding, which is so you'd have small boats and you'd usually go in at nighttime. The ship would be anchored somewhere completely unsuspecting of you turning up uh, to try and take them. Um, mostly happened in the Napoleonic Wars, actually. I think the Hermione was probably the, the most famous example, but it kind of gives you that element of surprise and you're... you're sneaking on a bit like the uh, the scene in Pirates of the Caribbean where they, they go up and climb up the sides of the ship. Tell me about the mine, because this might be a very daft question, but if even if you're coming in a small rowing boat, surely you can see this huge ship that's come from somewhere in the distance. Well, I mean, you'd, you'd think so, but uh, actually, it, I mean... It depends where you are as well. So I've heard of it happening where there's a there's kind of an inlet and the ship is anchored in the inlet and you're around the headland and you just sort of sneak around. Um, and of course, if it, if it's dark or the weather's bad or there's mis- like kind of misly rain or fog, then you can still have that element of surprise depending on how quiet you are uh, and obviously making sure you've got no lights, dimming the lamps, etc. Um, is is crucial really to be able to have that element of surprise. Um, Johnny Watkins on Facebook, he would really love to know about the uh, the diets that sailors had. He asked, uh, beyond salt beef, fish, ale, etc., what were the more unusual rations that they might have? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the standards were, like he said, the salt beef, you'd get your beer, which when you hear about the, the sailors being given, I think it was like a gallon of, of beer a day, you think, that's a lot. I don't know if I could drink that. But actually, the percentage was something like 1% to 3%, so it wasn't anywhere near the kind of beer that you might get if you go to the pub here um but yeah mostly it was that kind of salted beef and pork and oatmeal you you did get cheese uh if if there was some left I think Captain Cook famously gave his crew sauerkraut uh which is I guess a slightly niche one it helped or he thought it helped fight scurvy um there's a sailor called Jack Nasty Face who's written a memoir um it's a great name I don't think it was his real name obviously but um he talks about some of the food that they get given and he mentions um, what's this, uh, burgoo, I think, which is basically oatmeal and water. And then he also talks about this, this thing called scotch coffee, which is basically burnt bread, which you then boil in water, but you sweeten it with sugar. Um, it's not something that I particularly would would choose, but um, yeah, I guess that's a, a slightly different one. Um, one of the main meals they would have would be a, a thing called lobscouse, which was basically the meat uh, onions, pepper, and I think they chopped up ships, the ship's biscuit that you see in, you know, Master and Commander with the weevils, uh, and sort of put it in with that and stew it together. And obviously, then you'd have your your wine, your beer, your grog, etc. Um, and depending where you were in the world, you could you could add different things. So obviously, lemon and lime crucially important to stop scurvy. But there are stories of people catching turtles or sharks or um, even seagulls, I think. There's a story of uh, of a crew on the ISIS, I think, in Gibraltar, where they shoot the seagulls and eat them. So uh, slightly different, but um, yeah, I think a lot of it came from 
especially when you're away, what, what you could make the best of, really. There's a much more varied diet than I'd realised. I hadn't really thought about the live hunting aspect. You mentioned Scotch coffee there. Have you tried to make it? I haven't, no. It doesn't doesn't appeal to me, actually. I mean, I burn bread all the time, uh, but I haven't thought about mixing it in with water and sugar. Um, I think I'll avoid that one. I have tried ship's biscuits, though. I have made those before, the the hardtack. Um, very sort of salty kind of biscuit-type hard bread, I guess, really. But not not great, but obviously it, it did what it needed to do. And hopefully weevil-free? Definitely weevil-free, yeah. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But you'd always have, you know, maybe like a kraken, the giant sort of octopus in in a corner of the world. Um, And partly that was because there was a big blank space of water uh, (laughs) that they needed to fill. But also, I mean, it it kind of was a visual depiction of the fact that people didn't know what was out there. One of uh, the more popular search queries in this area is, uh, of course, about scurvy, which you mentioned. Could you just tell us a little bit about what that is and why it was such a problem in this period? Yeah, so um, scurvy, I mean, scurvy is a horrible, horrible illness. And actually, it's still still going on today. I saw a news article last week about scurvy being a problem because people weren't eating fruit and vegetables. And essentially, that's that's where it comes from. Um it's that not having the fresh fresh produce. So now we use what limes, lemons, or they started using limes and lemons because they worked out um, that actually that assisted because it was the vitamin C aspect. If you don't get enough vitamin C, you end up, you know, your teeth would fall out and you would have gums sort of rotting. And it was it was a really horrible, horrible um disease, I guess. But yeah, it's essentially based on the fact that you don't get enough vitamin C. Um and the way that the Navy went about this was obviously introducing that vitamin C. So obviously you can't really get fresh fruit and vegetables as you would now. You can just pop and go, oh, I should probably have eaten a bit more broccoli this week. I'll go and buy some. Uh, but they would put lime juice uh, in with the rum, etc., just to kind of ensure that people were kind of getting that vitamin C in without them having to just sit there munching on a lime, for example. I don't, I don't think anyone would want to do that. Um I think they previously thought that there were cures cures in the sense of, you know, like bloodletting and drinking sulfuric acid and all these horrible things. But it transpires that, yeah, you just, just vitamin C. <laughs> um, and like I said, Captain Cook um, famously gave his his guys sauerkraut. Um, but yeah, James Lind, the the surgeon, was the, was the guy that actually ran this kind of, I guess, a clinical trial of sorts to, to try and come up with a cure for it. They actually took, I think it was 40 or 50 years after he ran this trial for the Navy to actually go, oh, yeah, okay, we'll actually do that and start issuing it properly. But um, it, it definitely, definitely helped. And they think that's actually why British sailors have been, have come to be known as limeys. So we've talked about bleeding ears. We've talked about rotting gums. I feel a bit queasy. Trace Seeker on Instagram would love to know what kind of medical care there was on vessels in this time. I mean, the concept of having a, a doctor or a surgeon on a ship goes goes way back. I think it was actually uh, Emperor Hadrian that had a surgeon on all of his ships. 
Um, they were paid almost two or three times as much as the other officers because the, because of the level of importance. But um, you've got the Mary Rose. Uh, they they obviously had a surgeon. You can go and see the surgeon's equipment that they recovered from the wreck, which I always find fascinating. And actually, a lot of the equipment that you would have seen in this time period being used for surgery on board wouldn't look that out of place in a modern operating theatre, I guess, that... <laughs> Everything kind of has evolved, but essentially much of those are, are the same. Um, the Royal Navy always put a naval surgeon on board um, on their ships. They were appointed by the sick and hurt board, but they had to deal with so many different uh, amputations, for example, or those kind of trauma injuries from, from shot or even something like removing a splinter. Uh, but they also had to deal with scurvy, like we said, or... Uh, things like yellow fever and even sexually transmitted diseases after the sailors had been in, been into port and uh, and spent some time with the locals. I wonder, how do you perform any kind of surgery at sea when you're kind of moving around with a swell? Yeah, uh, so the surgeons would have had assistance, obviously. And and again, I, I keep bringing up master and commander, but it, it shows it so well. Uh, and you've got them putting the sand on the floor to try and stop the blood being quite so quite so slippery. There was a myth that uh, when HMS Victory, she's not the same colour now, but there was a myth that the deck of Victory had been painted red to kind of hide hide the blood. But um, I think that's been very much disproved. But they would have put sand on the on the floor to kind of stop you sliding around in it. Um, but yeah, you, you'd be on a table, same as same as I guess now. But you know that table would be covered. Um, if you were rolling, you'd be held down and, and you'd be, yeah, <laughs> operated on with no kind of anaesthetic in the sense that, that we do today, crucially, um, just having your arm lopped off with maybe a bit of leather to bite on and some laudanum or something. Another question we had from Tracy on Instagram, um, related to this was, did women give birth on ships? And we should probably talk a bit more about how many women were present on ships during this period of time as well. Was that a common thing? Uh, fairly. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a story of, uh, of from Trafalgar of actually one of the, the British ships going over to a French ship and um, actually picking up a, a survivor uh, who'd lost her husband uh, and she was on board. I mean, the Admiralty didn't really officially allow women on board, uh, but quite often you'd have the wives of maybe your warrant officers, your gunners, your surgeons, etc., or other officers join the ship. But they had to, they had to share the cabins or the hammocks, etc. They had to share their food rations. They didn't get their own food rations, so that had to be split between them. Um, but yeah, quite often you you would have women on board. Uh, there's a great story. I can't remember the ship, but essentially she was due to be giving birth, and she'd been in labour for something like twelve hours. Uh, so basically the surgeon went and asked if they could fire a broadside in order that it would kind of shock her body (laughs) pushing out this baby. And she did, she ended up, um, having a baby off the back of this broadside being fired. Um, but yeah, so, and there's a, there's a great paper that was written recently that actually covers the, the wife of one of the gunners looking after the midshipman, um, kind of being a bit of a mother figure to the younger, younger kids on well kids on board you'd have your powder monkeys for example who are very very tiny children so the the powder monkeys were we used to kind of run the gunpowder up from the magazine where the gunner was up to the gun crews so 
tiny little nimble children with with their buckets of gunpowder taking it up to for firing. We did talk about queasiness earlier, or I certainly did. KB the Ginger on Instagram asks how sailors combated seasickness. Oh, interesting. So uh, I'm not 100% positive or 100% certain on this. I've not actually seen that much about it uh, without people saying that they either watched the horizon to kind of equal it out in their brain, to kind of equal it out, which is actually something they tell you to do now is watch the horizon because it focuses you. Um, But a lot of people, I think, would have probably chewed on ginger or spices. Ginger is a big one. And I think even now they say that if you're feeling a bit queasy, you you should chew on ginger. Um, so if they had any of that available to them, then probably. But I think a lot of the time you just kind of had to get on with it. I mean, Horatio Nelson famously got seasick really, really badly uh, and said that it confoundedly put him out of humour. Um, but in his in his kind of classic Nelson way, he always kind of tied it back to duty and said, you know, it's my my service to my country keeps me at sea, even though I'm, you know, unwell or seasick or whatever. Speaking of service to your country... That seems like a good um, way to jump into a question from Will Pride eighteen on Instagram, who wanted to ask about impressment because it, we should probably say not everyone who was at sea in this period was a volunteer. No, um, although there's been some really interesting work carried out recently by a chap called Jeremiah Dancy, uh, who's actually he sat and went through all of the muster books of all of these ships, which must have taken well, in fact, it did take years. Uh, and actually found out that the number of people that were pressed rather than volunteered is a lot less than we think. So more people volunteered than than we think. But essentially, you'd have these press gangs, as everyone knows them, going around these kind of shipping nautical towns, port towns, and finding people to crew the Navy. I mean, obviously, you're going from peacetime, where you, you don't really need anyone, to suddenly a period of war where you may need well, upwards of 20,000 men. Uh, and so you'd have these press gangs set up in, in towns, Portsmouth, Plymouth, Chatham, etc. cetera. Uh, but really, there's kind of this myth, I guess, where people think of the press gangs going into pubs and going, you're coming with me, you look able-bodied, um, taking people away from their houses, etc. And well, it did happen and you'd have your landsmen who had never really been to sea before, but essentially you, d- you didn't particularly want them. You needed people who'd been to sea, who knew their way around a ship and understood how to to deal with the sails or heave on lines or fire guns if, if they could. So really it was kind of those merchant navy men that you, you would want. Uh, but you also had to be very aware that you didn't want to leave the merchant fleet with, <laughs> with nobody, otherwise you've... You've sort of messed everyone around. Um, but yeah, I mean, impressment was a huge, huge thing, but uh, it, it's nowhere near the the quantities that, that people believe. And a follow-on question from Hannah Law, originally on Instagram. Were press gang sailors also paid? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't just take people and not pay them. <laughs> yes, that's how you end up with mutinies on your hands. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, they were paid. Um, there was there's kind of a pay scale. So I've actually got a poster behind me that's got the uh, able seaman being offered five pounds, the ordinary seaman two pounds and ten shillings, and those landsmen that I mentioned that hadn't maybe been to sea before just got thirty shillings. So it, there was a pay scale, much as there is in in the Royal Navy today. But um, people definitely got paid. <laughs> I mean, speaking of impressment as well, 
there's a, a very common Google query about what it means to take the king's shilling, and that is t- tied into the myth office of impressment. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so uh, there's a really interesting story, uh, actually, that you know the king's shilling is kind of this token that you're given as a sign of of impressment, and there's a supposedly a pub in Portsmouth where the landlady used to drop the shilling into the beer, meaning that when they drank it, they, you know, the king's shilling is there and right off, off to sea with you. Um, and it's a it's a myth. It's a nice myth, but I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think you'd have been able to get away with it uh, to the extent that people think they did. But supposedly she recruited uh, like hundreds of people for the Navy in, the, in this method, this landlady in Portsmouth. It's quite a, quite a fun little story. You mentioned very briefly that you would want um, sailors over, you know, random people from the pub because you want people to know to sail and have the right discipline. How did discipline work on vessels at this time? And, you know, what kind of punishments were meted out for infractions? I mean, again, there's another quite uh, popular Google query about what it means to be tarred and feathered. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are... It was, yeah. Uh, the I mean, the punishments that you would get on board a ship were, they were a deterrent. I think that's the best way to look at it is that they're not supposed to be a nice little disciplinary chat with, you, <laughs> with your commanding officer. They were to deter, A, you from doing it again, but also to put other people off off doing the same thing. Um, so you hear, you hear nowadays people saying, letting the cat out of the bag or not enough room to swing a cat. And actually, those t- those terms come from the Royal Navy uh, and your cat of nine tails, which was kind of a, a handle with nine pieces of rope with little knots tied in them, and, and you would be flogged with it. And it was the most uncomfortable, painful thing. Um, and that would be your most common punishment, really, was a flogging. Um, the rest of the crew would be made to watch. Um, and they'd either use the end of a rope or they'd use use the cat. As well as that, you obviously had people being. Sometimes you'd be caned. I've I've seen I've seen examples of people being caned. Um, you're tarred and feathered, obviously, as as you said. But um, flogging by far was was the 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 gravest. I said, well, no, the most common, the gravest. Obviously, if you were guilty of mutiny or murder, was that you'd be hung from the yardarm. As I mean, we've all heard the the saying of being hung from the yardarm, but that would happen. Um, I think the worst punishment, I've not actually seen that many cases of it happening, uh, was a flogging around the fleet. But essentially, the ships that were were in the port at that time would send people, um, the crews would be mustered on deck, and this this chap would be sent around to each of the ships and flogged uh, by each ship. Um, And it was very rare that you would actually survive that, if I'm honest. We mentioned pay very briefly, but one other thing you picked up on earlier was prize money. Do you think you could tell us what that is and how it ties in? Yeah. Uh, so essentially, you would, I mean, like I said, your frigates were the the ships that really made the most, I guess, in prize money. And if, if again, if you've seen Hornblower, they talk about it uh, quite a lot. You know, the the prospect of this this prize money um, from taking taking other ships, really. Um, and I guess it kind of meant that you you would capture an enemy ship, essentially. The Navy would purchase it, and that, again, would then be kind of split. Officers would make the most. The crew would get a small small part of it. Um, 
But that's essentially the gist of it, really, is that you would capture an enemy ship, the Navy would buy it, and then the money got got sent. I mean, I think for a, a normal sailor, it was a case of a few shillings. So you weren't, you weren't doing that well. But a lot of captains ended up with these massive stately homes ashore, which they'd bought with the amount of prize money that they, they'd made. So officers seem to do quite well out of it. If you are a everyday sailor, it's not going to make you rich. No, but it, it would be a nice little addition, I guess, to your... If you got on to, if you made it onto a ship that was pretty pretty nifty at actually capturing other ships, then you'd make more. But it, it depended on your ship, depended on your crew, um, and depended as well, I guess, on the ship that you actually managed to take. What about if you fell overboard? Uh, I remember Master and Commander, there's a, a, a brilliant scene of someone falling overboard in a storm. I mean, how likely you survive that scenario out at sea i mean if you're spotted then <laughs> you would survive but i mean there are stories of people falling overboard and, and never being seen again certainly and i mean that that still happens today i mean if you think about the size of a person and if you think about how rough these seas can get you're trying to spot somebody in the dark in, especially if it's dark um it, it would be incredibly difficult if you've got storm a storm raging, you can't hear them shouting. And I mean, even today, you you see people, uh, there are a lot of videos on online of, of people in life jackets and you've got these fluorescent yellow hoods, but you can still barely make them out against the sea. Um, it would, yeah. I mean, life at sea was incredibly dangerous in, in so many ways. Yes, very definitely. I mean, what other ways are you thinking of there? Oh, for, uh, well, obviously, if you're on a navy ship, there's the 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 battle aspect. But I mean, the weather for, <sighs> hideous. Uh, you're not in great conditions. You haven't got the best. You haven't got all this nice Gore-Tex sailing jackets and things that you've got today. You'd have tarred clothes. Um, you've got the illnesses going around without that kind of modern medicine that we've got today. You've got the the possibility of falling from the rigging. Um, You've got the possibility of being captured or or fired on. Like I said, there's just there's yeah, uh, just not a nice, not a great environment to work in. Damp, dark conditions quite often. Um, the navy ships were slightly better in the sense that people had you know regular provisions etc. But just not a great great place to be essentially in in the grand scheme of things. Unless you're an officer and then you're sort of there in your cabin with your nice mutton at night time and your your sort of people serving you coffee when you want it, etc. But not Scotch coffee. But not Scotch coffee, no. <laughs> Actual coffee. I think it's a the Master and Commander books are really good actually. Um they're quite heavy going to read, but they give you such a good idea of life in the Navy at that time. How do the Master and Commander books feel about piracy? It's a very common trope that piracy is a big part of this period. Um is that accurate? I mean, pirates have, have have been part of history since ancient times. I mean, you've still got pirates today as well. So uh, pirates are a, a huge, well, a huge problem, but less less so for the Royal Navy. Um, I don't think pirates are that stupid <laughs> to try and take on the. Oh, it happens today. There, there was a, a, a ship recently that took on a, a Danish ship in the Gulf of Guinea. Some pirates took on a Danish Navy ship recently. But um, throughout this kind of 16th, 17th, century which is sort of the golden age of piracy with your i don't know captain kidd and blackbeard and in these kind of famous names um it was it was a big deal um and obviously 
the whole concept of of pirates they're trying to make their money aren't they and they get get their ships and sell it and make the money and everyone's trying to do the same thing i mean if you look back through history at you know corsairs or or privateers even um and obviously i think francis drake's famously described as a privateer uh although i think a lot of people dispute that kind of naval tie privateer type bit bit of a controversial chap but um you know that if you think about it in the the context of the time there aren't that many jobs at home people don't have the kind of if you're not going to see in the navy there aren't that many jobs realistically um if you're from a city uh again you need to find something to do to make money and people had to kind of work out how to do it and piracy tempted these kind of lower paid seamen or merchantmen it's that for example, because they kind of had a bit more control and they could, they were sold on the whole story of being able to make loads of money. Um, and obviously that didn't particularly happen all the time, but it was, it's the same now, isn't it? You get offered a get rich quick scheme and people people want to take it because they're in a, a dire situation. So, I mean, One thing I remember from the Pirates of the Caribbean films is that idea that pirates were often sailors first. Is that accurate? Well, yeah, I mean... It, you can't sail a ship otherwise. Uh, I mean, there's that great, the great scene, isn't there, in, in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean where you've got Jack and Will and they get onto the ship and flapping the, the lines around. There's absolutely no way that they could have sailed that ship out of the harbour with two people um, purely because of the amount of sails that you, <laughs> you would have had to put out. But um, it's, yeah, it's, it's they're great films. I love them. But um, piracy was a, was a big problem. Um there are some really interesting people on Twitter working on on sort of new histories of pirates at the moment, uh, and it, it's fascinating. I mean, one other danger that Jessica Roberts on Facebook asked about is sea monsters. How common was belief in sea monsters, and what what monsters would they have believed in if they did? Uh, quite a few people believed in them. I mean, if you look at the uh, some of the old charts and maps, um, and most of them were for for kind of uh, decorative purposes but you'd always have you know maybe like a kraken the giant sort of octopus in in a corner of the world um and partly that was because there was a big blank space of water uh <laughs> that they needed to fill but also i mean it it kind of was a visual depiction of the fact that people didn't know what was out there uh you know there could be these giant krakens or leviathans or the the mega sharks what are they called Meg- megalodons i think the giant sharks um and people just didn't really know and then obviously you bring into it things like mermaids or sirens and there is a lot of superstition and myth uh at sea even to this day things like not being able to take bananas on board um i'm not quite sure where that one came from but there, there's so many you know um myths and stories and I guess also you're you're away from sea for a long period of time and you don't particularly go anywhere or do anything. And I, I imagine that maybe it kind of came from a, a kind of an imagination perspective as well, it gives a little bit of danger to your voyage. So when you go back and tell your stories, what did you do? Uh, we sat there for weeks on end, bored out of our tree when we weren't actually sailing anywhere or fighting. But, you know, there was a giant octopus that came and fought us etc um I, I find them all fascinating i love it i've got some out, some little sea monster models that i'm painting at the moment so i mean i like to think that the concept of mermaids especially 
Um, when you think about it from a practical perspective, if you've ever seen dolphins going alongside a ship or a yacht at nighttime, sometimes you get the phosphorescence with all the the light coming off the water. And I, I like to think that maybe that's where the whole concept of mermaids came from, because you see these dolphin tails in the dark with all the sort of sparkly light coming off of it. Um, and that's where that's where I like to think it comes from. And I can I could quite easily see how you would you would think that. And if you think about the giant squids that people do see on occasion that wash up on beaches and things, I mean, it's not outside the realms of possibility for people to then be thinking there's probably something much bigger than this. And I mean, we don't know. There could be. Maybe there's a kraken out there in the middle of the Atlantic somewhere just waiting. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Um, you did touch on there about how these stories fill up time and you didn't say, oh, I've been away for so long and being bored out of your tree. But that is an interesting point. How long were these kind of journeys? Because we, we think about travel as being quite short today. But actually, it was quite a long time away from land, right? It was a really long time. Sometimes people were away for multiple years at a time. Um, there are stories of people writing writing a letter uh, or their families writing a letter saying, this is what happened at Christmas. And by the time they go back to it, you know, it's, it's taken until September to get to them. So it was last Christmas. It was months ago. Um, but yeah, you'd be away for, for years at a time sometimes. Were ghost ships a... A kind of a concern at this time as well. I've never come across it personally, but I mean, there's the the famous myth or the famous story, isn't there, of the Marie Celeste floating around? Um, so yeah, I've not I've not come across it in any of the research that I've done, but I imagine so. I mean, there's a there's a great story uh, of a, a ghost ship supposedly in the Solent off the Isle of Wight that apparently Winston Churchill saw when he was a young child, um, and Prince Edward said that he saw it as well. So um, whether or not it was just a ship that was in the fog or something, but but the myth certainly prevails. <laughs> Speaking of myths, this feels like a good question to end on, and it's from Frank Shoemaker on Facebook. And they ask, what is the most enduring myth about the Age of Sail? Ooh, I think for me it would be the romance of it. Uh, there's this kind of idea of these tall ships being crewed by these perfect crews and everyone getting on and it's a jovial jack tar uh kind of environment and actually when you look into it 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 like I said it was it was a miserable place to work I don't know that anyone would particularly want to work there um unless they had a real real love of the sea and I think it's kind of that that myth of the the romance that comes with the age of sail I guess rather than the reality that was the naval historian Kate Jamieson. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 